reunion here in some ways, but it's good to see everybody here, and um, it's good to have the Sullivans back, of course, here this morning uh, for our Sunday school time together. Uh, but let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then, of course, our brother can come up and begin our series on uh, revivalism. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning, uh, this beautiful Lord's Day that you've given us to worship you for the salvation which you have freely given in Jesus Christ. uh, We pray that you will be with our brother as he comes to show us uh, a a taste of how you have been at work in special ways in reviving the hearts and minds of uh, believers in in our own nation's history. And we pray that we can not only... um, be encouraged by the ways in which your Holy Spirit has been at work. We can also uh, have have a a deepening desire uh, for seeing revival in our own church and community today. And so we pray that you'll richly bless our time together and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think of a verse in the back of your mind while I get started this morning. Matthew 25, verse 5. And while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Keep that in your mind. They slumbered and slept. Many of you may not know the name Lay Richmond, he wrote numerous Bible tracts in the late 1700s, early 1800s, such as The Dairyman's Daughter and numerous other tracts that ended into a book called The Annals of the Poor. And in my library, I have a first edition of his biography, but it was what he said on his deathbed that I want to grip us right now. In fact, I wish I could read the whole paragraph because it's so edifying, but he was born in 1772 and died in 1827, and on his deathbed, he said to a man who was standing there ministering to him as he was dying, he said to the people around him, and this man in particular, brother, We are only half awake. We are none of us more than half awake. Well, what did he mean by that? Let's look at something else here. First of all, a little bit of introduction about how I discovered these books. Uh, Puritan Works, specifically, there's a website, prdl.org. Post-Reformation Digital Library. This year marks my 30th year of being online, and so I've watched all of this unfold, how they got all these old books 
published in PDF format. And the library out there is incredible. But the first persons that I can remember that started to do this was the University of Michigan called the Making of America Project. And they wanted to get all of these old books that had to do with American history and get them on the internet, and it became part of what is called books.google.com. And I'll mention that in a moment, because I want to show you something when we get to my study of one aspect of the Great Awakening. But there's an introduction to this book, Benjamin Stoneham, 1676, where the preface says to the reader, as in all ages, it has been Satan's desire to blind the minds of men, even from our first parents, whom he has soon rocked into a dead sleep with all their posterity, and which they would have lain until now had not Christ awakened them. End quote. So the emphasis on, is on the dullness, the sleepiness, the slumbering. This is what revival is to remedy. When the manifest presence of God comes upon an assembly, well, what is the definition of a revival and what are its marks? According to the generic significance of the word, it means to reanimate, to awaken, to new life, and hence it presupposes a state of declension, and that's very common prior to revival. There may have been a real state of declension in the case of the Great Awakening. Most of your Anglican churches in England, when George Whitfield set out to preach, weren't even talking about the new birth at that time. It wasn't even a subject in the pulpit. So it was a time of declension. But since an awakened church is always a converting agency, any religious awakening is a revival. Whether the term be applied to the work of converting the unregenerate or to the task of bringing new life to a dead and decaying church, end quote, G.A. Frank, A History of America, or G.A. Frank Birdsley, A History of American Revivals. In the year 1832, a book that Banner of Truth republished. They republished the first edition that actually belonged to an English pastor named Charles Simeon. And it's called Lectures on Revival. And he wrote, this is a subject in which the church is not only deeply interested at the present time. Well, why is that? Because the Second Great Awakening was going on. But it's likely to be more and more interested for a long time to come, In quote. Well, I wish that was still the case. Sprague's books, and most of the books on this subject published by the Banner of Truth did not stay in print due to a lack of interest. A Log College by Archibald Alexander, uh, John Gilley's Historical Collections and Accounts of Revival, they didn't stay in print. There hasn't been a lot of interest in this subject. For me as a young Christian, for a long time, it consumed me. I got to Grand Rapids in the year 1988 in December. My brother was in Indianapolis. Now he's in Northern California. So I went down to visit him, and as I always do when I get into a big city, I went to the bookstore. 
So Sprague's book was written in 1832, and I'm going through the bookstore and I found this. It's the second edition from 1833. Now what's interesting about this book is there's a collection in the appendix of letters that were written to him at his request about what they knew of revivals and the revivals that were going on in the early 19th century. And I'm debating, but I'm leaning toward talking about that period in two weeks. I won't be here next week, it's Easter. But in two weeks of discussing what happened after the Revolutionary War through the end of Asa Hell Nettleton's ministry about the year 1840, so much of this history isn't really well known. But I want to talk about the first and second things that accompany a revival of religion. The first thing that attends revival or precedes it is a serious attention to prayer. And I'm going to use um, this sermon and its history because, one, everybody seems to know that there was a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But what's interesting about my study is, the fact is, what you suppose you know about it is probably inaccurate because it's been so embellished. That's actually a first edition. That's a 1741 printing of that. So I, I read the histories. Um, it's so embellished. I mean, yesterday I was reading numerous accounts that said that the people were under such fear that they came up into the stage, into the pulpit, trying to get Jonathan Edwards to desist because they were so afraid. Please stop preaching. Well, that's embellished. That never happened. Or maybe you heard the story that somebody grabbed his coattail and said, but isn't God a God of mercy as well? I've never found that. It's embellished. Now, the real records are interesting in themselves, but when you're studying church history, this is really helpful for you. If somebody quotes another person, try to go back to that original source and see what you can find about what really happened. And I've discovered over these years, and I first started studying this, I'm sure over 30 years ago, there's actually two only live accounts of what happened when Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon. And those are, if you see on the left, a man named Eliezer Wheelock, who became the president of Dartmouth College. He was the pastor, and there were a number of pastors in Connecticut, that picked up Jonathan Edwards to bring him to the church in Enfield. And it's probable that Edwards wasn't even meant to be the preacher that evening. But he happened to bring with him some sermons. One of them is this one that he had preached to his own congregation. And in that case, without much visible fruit. So he had it with him and they, I don't know what happened, but they asked, could you fill in that evening? And I think one of the reasons that Edwards would have some of his sermons with him when he was with other pastors is because you couldn't get his works published really easily in Northampton, Massachusetts. They had to get to Boston or some other uh, metropolis in those days that would be able to publish this stuff. So Eliezer Wheelock brings him into the church, to the assembly, 
And he's there and he witnesses what happens. And he communicates it to a man named Benjamin Trumbull. And Trumbull is the author of A History of Connecticut in two volumes. This is in the second volume. And so one of the things that we know about this sermon is only what's communicated by this pastor to this historian. And it says, the story behind Edward's sermon in Enfield, quote, while the people in the neighboring towns were in great distress for their souls, the inhabitants of that town were very secure, loose, and vain. A lecture had been appointed in Enfield, and the neighboring people, please, please get this uh, sentence, and I'm going to emphasize it. The neighboring people the night before were so affected at the thoughtlessness of the inhabitants and in such fear that God would, in his righteous judgment, pass them by while the divine showers were falling all around them as to be prostrate before him a considerable part of it, supplicating mercy for their souls. When the time appointed for the lecture came, number Numbers of the neighboring ministers attended as some from a distance. When they went into the meeting house, and I'm putting the emphasis on the night before the prayer, the first thing that commonly attends a revival. The people hardly conducted themselves, they're getting ready for the meeting, and the people hardly conducted themselves with any common decency. The Reverend Mr. Edwards of Northampton preached, and before the sermon was ended, the assembly appeared deeply impressed and bowed down with an awful conviction of their sin and danger. There was such a breathing of distress and weeping that the preacher was obliged to speak to the people and desire silence that he might be heard. This is the beginning of the same great and prevailing concern in that place with which the colony in general was visited. But here's the important point that's missed in the sermon. People see this sermon, they read this sermon, they are so impressed with the imagery, and it is an impressive sermon. I have probably narrated it 15 or 20 times, and it still affects me uh, every time I read it. But what is not known and is embellished is, brethren, we don't even know how much of this sermon he even got through. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came upon this congregation in answer to the people's prayer from the night before where it said a good part of the night they were crying out to God, prostrate before Him, that they were worried that the Holy Spirit would pass by the infilled town as the uh, Holy Spirit was coming upon the neighboring communities and they wouldn't have it and they were desperate a prayer meeting the night before. And brethren, the historians don't emphasize that. They give all of the weight upon the words of the sermon and the seriousness of the preacher. Edwards always walked into the pulpit and there was such a feeling of a man that came out of the holy presence of God that that alone would affect the people that knew anything about his demeanor, about his history.
So it's interesting. I've tried to find out, and I can't. He may not have gotten very far along in the sermon. The emphasis is, brethren, God visited his people because they were crying out to him. They wanted revival there in Enfield, and they were willing to spend the whole night before almost and crying out to God, please, please don't leave us alone. Well, we only have one other account of what happened in this revival, and this is really interesting as well. The man that you see down at the bottom corner of this picture is named Stephen Williams. Stephen Williams kept a diary. For 10 years, he kept this diary. It's very difficult to read. You can see one page of it over on the right. A number of years ago, somebody took it and put it into at least a readable English, but kept it into the 18th century almost shorthand. So Stephen Williams is actually related to Jonathan Edwards. In Northampton, if anybody's last name was Williams, they probably were related to uh, Jonathan Edwards. In fact, it was his cousin Solomon that created a controversy against Edwards that eventually ended up in him being voted out of the pulpit uh, by a percentage of like uh, 22 to 10. But Williams kept this diary, and I said, well, then I got to find the diary. Is it online? Can I find this? So I discovered that in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, a library called Stores, S-T-O-R-R-S, library, actually had all 10 years of this diary. It's historic. It's, you know, very rare that a diary would be continued that long. In fact, the only person I know that kept a diary for longer that I can remember is Howell Harris, a preacher from Scotland in the days of Whitfield and Daniel Rowland. So from the diary, now how do I find this? I have to go through discover which volume contains July of 1741. But even doing that and reading down, his dates are not really clear, so I actually have to find the words and I have to decipher them. But that's actually a picture of the microfish. And then to the right, you see a picture of the diary. And the diary of Stephen Williams and the verbal communication of Eliezer Wheelock is all that we had, but Williams wrote, we went over to Enfield, Connecticut, where we met dear Mr. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards of Northampton, who preached a most awakening sermon, for, sermon from these words. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, their foot shall slide in due time. And before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying out through the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I am going to hell. Oh, what shall I do? for Christ, and so on, that the minister was obliged to desist, as Eliezer Wheelock said. So, how would you get him to desist? He held his arms in the air. Please, please, you need to hear the sermon. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I don't believe they ever heard the sermon. Now, what was good is you had numerous pastors in their midst who probably were already experiencing the revival and took some of these awakened people aside and communicated to them the gospel. So that the minister was obliged to desist, the shrieks and cries were piercing and amazing. After some time of waiting for the congregation to be still, 
A prayer was made by Mr. Wheelock, which tells me he was probably the pastor of this church. And after that, we descended from the pulpit and discoursed with the people. Some in one place, so I'm supposing the pastors are going from person to person, and some in another, and amazing and astonishing, the power of God was seen. Several souls were hopefully wrought upon that night. And oh, the cheerfulness and pleasantness of their countenance that received comfort. Oh, that God would strengthen and confirm. We sang a hymn and prayed and dismissed the assembly, end quote. I want to have a lot more information uh, from that, but the first question I would ask is, okay, so you dismissed the assembly, Typically, in a revival of that nature, they won't leave. And I may be able to discuss that later, but what continually happens is there's still the manifest presence of God upon the assembly. And people won't leave because they're so awestruck with the manifest presence of God upon the assembly. And one of the most amazing accounts I ever read, and I teach this, I read it when I teach on the great revival of New York in 1857 and in 1858 and how it found its way in the United Kingdom at the same time this Jeremiah Lanfear was praying for a revival in Manhattan. Another man named Macmillan was praying for God's presence in Ireland. So they put together this book called, it was William Reed who wrote a book, The Blood of Christ, but Authentic Records of Revival Now in Progress in the United Kingdom, 1859. And on page 22, and I've had to remember so much of this stuff because I deal a lot with people who are naysayers about the Great Awakening and that there really was a revival. And there was this man named Adam McGill, and he gives an account of this revival that came to his church. And the people at the prayer meeting on a Wednesday night were dismissed at 9.30 at night, and it was 3.30 in the morning before they could compel them to go home. But the two things that I want to point out that you see in this first part of my talk this morning is that prayer usually precedes a revival, and when the Holy Spirit in His manifest presence comes upon an assembly, the second thing that should mark a revival is a felt manifold presence of God. It shows itself in great fear in those unconverted. It also re-enlivens the dull and obdurate spiritual affections in those who are converted. And brethren, I've been narrating, I narrate this stuff. I've been narrating this stuff for 35 years. I've never seen a revival where anybody in a revival laughed. It's ludicrous. The so-called laugh and revival of Toronto or whatever, I never ever read an account of any kind of frivolity like that in a revival. But I want to read a couple of accounts of revivals that came to these men. And before I do that, I'll show you what I'm talking about, how that I have to answer some of these men that have come up to me and they don't even believe there is a great awakening. This book came out in 1999. I just got it in about a week ago, but I was aware of it 
uh, called Inventing the Great Awakening, and he goes through the opponents in that day of the revival that came from Georgia all the way up into New Jersey over uh, in Whitfield's preaching in Compslang, uh, Kilsyth, Scotland, England, and so on, and tries to put together a picture that all of this stuff was manufactured. Well, thankfully, I already had a book um, from a man who wrote an apologetic for the Great Awakening. In fact, when I came across his book and he answers all these objections, I wrote to him and I thanked him for that because of the type of research that I do. But I have had uh, men come up to me, well, what are some of their objections against the Great Awakening? They sang Isaac Watts hymns. What's the big deal? These people are what do we call stillites or covenanter Presbyterians, and they think there can't be an awakening if you're singing uninspired hymns, which is ridiculous. Uh, the other thing I want to point out before I move on is uh, the very name centers in the hands of an angry God. Most of these titles to these sermons probably didn't come from Jonathan Edwards. They were other persons publishing them that put a fit title to them. And I'll give you an example of that. Now, this was really the Great Awakening here, but in the year 1735, there was a great revival that came more locally on the church at Northampton, where Jonathan Edwards pastored. And there had been numerous smaller revivals in Northampton under the preaching of his grandfather, who was Solomon Stoddard, his maternal grandfather. And he just called them visitations. He really didn't even refer to these things as revivals in the 18th century. In fact, the term the Great Awakening really has its foundation in a book written by a Congregationalist in 1842 named Joseph Tracy. They didn't use the term Great Awakening and so on. Well, when Edwards published the account of the revival in Northampton in 1735, he sent it to a couple of friends who were inquiring about it in the United Kingdom. The person who actually titled that, A Narrative of Many Surprising Conversions, was Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts and uh, another man were responsible for getting that book in print in England. So a lot of these titles that you read of Edwards' sermons, Edwards never came up with them himself. But because Edwards typically gets um, pointed at and locked in the crosshairs of people that want to discount the Great Awakening, when I teach on this, because a lot of times it's certain Presbyterians, I quote their own good men who God used in the first Great Awakening who didn't have these outcries in the congregation, who recorded things that happened under their own ministry. And these are men that they respect. The first one is Jonathan Dickinson. Jonathan Dickinson was a pastor in Newark, New Jersey, and also Elizabethtown, New Jersey. And he was the first president of what became the College of New Jersey. And the other is from these men that we call the log college men. The log college was a term of derision actually, but it was just a log cabin, very, very small, where they 
this William Tennant, who I believe was Irish or Scot, Scotch-Irish Presbyterian, started this ministry in the early 1700s to prepare men for the ministry. So William Ten Tennant Sr., William Tennant Jr., and their son Gilbert, all of these men were used in the Great Awakening. But other men associated with them, one of them started a southern branch of it called Samuel Blair. Samuel Blair is interesting because David Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to Samuel Davies as the greatest preacher that America had ever produced. Well, Samuel Davies was trained under Samuel Blair, and Samuel Davies says the greatest preacher I ever heard was Samuel Blair. And I put that foundation so that you realize these were good, good men that God used in the First Great Awakening. These were called New Light Presbyterians, where the naysayers such as Charles Chauncey and Jonathan Mayhew, who wrote against them, were called Old Side Presbyterians. And just something to keep in the back of your mind, those people, some of them that opposed the Great Awakening, went on to become Unitarians. So I thought, well, that's an interesting connection. So from a letter from John Sacombe, a minister at Harvard, and all of these are gathered up into what is called uh, John Gillies, this is a first edition, was a Scottish pastor, and he mostly got his information from Thomas Prince. The man that you see in the middle was a great historian of the 18, 1700s. And so they would take their accounts of revival, and then he compiled them in a magazine called The Christian History. That one, I believe, is from 1743. And that's what's so nice about the research you can do now. You wouldn't believe how many first edition things that I can find. They're actually not just uh, creating PDFs of a more modern reprint. They try to get back to the very first edition. And it's amazing to me, as much as we um, get opposed to some of the things that Google is doing at the same time for my kind of research, I just have such a... Um, debt that I owe them for bringing these things to light for my own kind of study. So from John Sacombe, and he had written this to Thomas Prince, February 20th, 1744, from Prince's Christian History, number 54, quote, now they become wonderfully attentive to the word preached. So this is what's going on in the revival. As if they would not let loose a single sentence. Every sentence that came from the preacher, it's like they held to it, like their very soul depended on the proper receiving of every single sentence of their pastor. I mean, brethren, any pastor would want that. If your pastor, DeVito, stood up here and knew that this place was full of anxious inquirers and they were listening as for life and for eternity at every word he that proceeded out of his mouth. He would say, God is of a truth in the midst of us. I mean, what other conclusion could you have? As newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the word, many were very desirous of seeing themselves as they were and greatly afraid lest their conviction should wear away before they had found Christ. Some, while under the spirit of bondage, were so sensibly affected with their danger 
that they dare not close their eyes to sleep at night, lest they should awake in hell, and would sometimes arise in the night and go to the windows, staring out the windows under alarming fears at Christ's sudden coming to judgment, would happen that night, expecting to hear the sounding of the trumpet to summon all nations to appear before him. So they are still awakened. They don't yet have hope. Sometimes the hope is deferred for whatever reason. Uh, God is pleased that that would be the case, and they're staring out the window afraid. What if he comes tonight and I'm not prepared to receive him? And he ends his paragraph, Thus, when the terrors of God make sinners afraid, there is a dreadful sound in their ears. Well, the third thing about a revival, it alarms false converts in a congregation to a conviction that they have never actually been born again. And Thomas Prince had heard Gilbert Tennant, who had a reputation Tenet could be fiery at times, and sometimes it irritated people. But sometimes he had such a passion that even George Whitfield, for Whitfield to say this is quite a testimony, that if you heard him, you must either be converted or enraged. You couldn't be indifferent. And Prince says of him, he seemed to have no regard to please the eyes of his hearers with agreeable gesture nor their ears with delivery, nor their fancy with language, but to aim directly at their hearts and consciences, to lay open the ruinous delusions, show them their numerous secret hypocritical shifts in religion, and drive them out of every deceitful refuge in which they made themselves easy with the form of godliness without the power. We well, say, was this really necessary? It had already gotten to the point where there were Presbyterian pastors, and for sure in the Church of England there were Anglican pastors that were filling the pulpit who never even were required to have made a profession, a genuine profession of being Christians. And this is what Tenet is going after. And many who were pleased in a good conceit of themselves before now found to their great distress they were only self-deceived hypocrites. And though... While the discovery was making, while they were first discovering this, some at first raged, they were angry, as they had confessed to me and to others. Yet in the progress of the discovery, many were forced to submit. And then the power of God so broke and humbled them, and they wanted a further and even a more thorough discovery. Lord, search me and try my heart. If I'm building on the sand, I want to find out now. And they went to hear Gilbert Tennant that the secret corruptions and delusions of their hearts might be more discovered. And the more searching the sermon, the more acceptable it was to their anxious minds. Well, this is what I conjecture from that. So, if later on they even want, you know, go back to hear more of his sermons, and they want it to be more searching, an indication is already there that they already may be born again. They're not angry anymore. They're asking, feed us, tell us the truth. Don't deceive us. Don't tickle our ears. So commonly in a revival, there are more pungent convictions prior to conversion. Last week when I was giving my testimony, I said, you know, there could be two extremes. You have a family nurturing model. You grew up in a Christian family. 
you were taught the catechism, you were there in family devotions, your parents prayed over you, you had these things from your youth up so you may not have known the day of your conversion, and that's legitimate, there is that. But during a revival, it's more common that because of the manifest presence of God, there's going to be more of a felt, pungent conviction. And when I say conviction, right now I'm talking about legal fears, not necessarily evangelical conviction. Quote, says Suckham, We had no instances among us of a sudden conversion, as I have heard of elsewhere, but our new converts were all for a considerable time under a law work before they were brought to any satisfying views of their interests in Christ and the favor of God. Nor had we many examples of those ecstatic, rapturous joys that were so frequent in some other places. It was remarkable that they who were formerly eminent for religion were now greatly quickened and revived, and some of them had now such joyful manifestations of God's love to their souls as they never had before experienced. And Jonathan Edwards, from his narrative, there's a great, very great variety as to the degree of fear and trouble that persons are exercised with before they attain any comfortable evidences of pardon and acceptance with God, and so on. I want to see if there's anything else I needed to show you. Samuel Blair, he was uh, Samuel Davies' pastor, I think there was scarcely a sermon or lecture preacher through that whole summer, but there were manifest evidences of impressions on the hearers. And many times the impressions were very great in general. Several would be overcome, and they would faint. Others deeply sobbing, hardly able to contain themselves. Others crying in the most painful manner. Many others more silently weeping and a solemn concern appearing in the countenances of many others. And sometimes the soul exercises a sum, though comparatively but very few, would so far affect their bodies as to occasion some strange, unusual bodily motions. I had opportunities of speaking particularly with a great many of those who afforded such outward tokens of inward soul concern in a time of public worship and hearing of the word. Indeed, many came to me of themselves in their distress for private instruction and counsel, and I found so far as I can remember that with by far the greater part, their apparent concern in public was not just in a transient qualm of conscience or merely a floating commotion of affections, but a rational fixed conviction of their dangerous and perishing estate." End quote. Point four, other revivals are more local, and I discussed this. It could be at Northampton, but in a great awakening, it covers an extended community. And communities and parishes, as they call them in those days, and states, and a lot of that was under the ministry of Whitfield, who covered so much ground. And five, genuine revival should be fruit should show fruit in transformation of communities and reformation in churches as well as fruits in the lives of professors for many years to come. So Joseph Tracy, who finally in 1842 put together a more official history of the Great Awakening, says various estimates have been given of the number added to the churches. Dr. Cogswell in his Christian Philanthropist, page 392, thinks it probable that 25,000 were added to the churches of New England. 
and Trumbull in his History of Connecticut estimates the number of converts in New England in two or three years at 30 or 40,000. Now you have to keep that in mind as to what the population of the colonies were in those days. At the time of Whitfield's third visit to America from 1744 to 1748, there were not less than 20 ministers in the vicinity of Boston who considered Whitfield, and they were already ministered, but considered Whitfield as a means of their conversion. So there's more that I could tell you, but uh, I do want to give you an opportunity to ask any questions if anyone wants to ask anything before I close, because I ended too soon last week. Anyway, I'll, I'll close with this. If anybody has any questions, or you could ask me later. Those who owed their conversion to the revival in the whole country must have been considerably more numerous. The value of such an infusion of life into the ministry was incalculable. The revival also did much to furnish means of education for the ministry and for all the learned professions. The reader who has already seen that it produced a college at Princeton. By the way, the Log College, I mentioned the Log College, and numerous men became their presidents. He had Jonathan Dickinson, and he was followed by Aaron Burr Sr., who actually married one of the daughters of Jonathan Edwards. And then he had Jonathan Edwards and Samuel Davies and Samuel Finley. The first six presidents of the Log College, or the College of New Jersey, probably died within the first eight to 10 years. They just had such short life expectations. Well, the College of New Jersey in the year 1896 became actually the University of Princeton. And that's where it had its beginning. I mean, if you trace out the early colleges and uh, you know, our first seminary in this country wasn't until 1806, and that was Andover Theological Seminary. And the reason that was started was because a lot of these people were going to Harvard College, and a professor of theology there, Henry Ware, had become a Unitarian. So in 1806, they had a burden, a number of them got together to start a seminary where they knew that the people that were teaching the ministerial aspirants were indeed solid and good professors, but a lot of this comes out of our first and second great awakening. Uh, for example, I said that Eliezer Wheelock became the president of Dartmouth, and in the second great awakening, you had a man named Edward Dorr Griffin, and he was a revival preacher, and he became the pastor of Williams College. And also, uh, Heman Humphrey, who was a close friend of Asahel Nettleton, and he became the president of Amherst College. So we enjoyed such good days during the first and second great awakening where these good men who had a great reputation became the presidents of these colleges. And it just shows you the need. We need to cry out to God that something like this would happen again. And I'm telling you, brethren, I really feel this as a burden on my heart. We're not going to get there unless we get like the people of Enfield, Connecticut, and we see that our need is desperate. And if the things around us don't convince us that they are, 
then we're like the sleeping virgins of Matthew 25, and we don't want to be there. But my time is quickly gone, and I'll close with prayer. Go ahead, brother. The, the entire Protestant Reformed denomination, for example. No. In fact, you can look it up. One of their professors is named Herman Hanko, and do a search on, ought we to pray for revival? And the whole summation of that whole article is no. And I'll tell you why. Because they believe in the covenant nurturing family model of bringing children into the kingdom. They don't evangelize. They think this is God's common way and they have no respect for a law work conversion that the Puritans would talk about. So the old Puritan books like James Janeway that talked about numerous conversions of children and so on, they just don't have any use for that. They said that? Not only that, the whole Protestant Reformed Church has started in uh, the year 1924, right there in Grand Rapids, where I just came from. Uh, Herman Hoeksema was kicked out of the Christian Reformed Churches in Grand Rapids. So he gets to his Christian Reformed Church, and I used to be the letter carrier there, 506 Eastern. He tries to get into his church on a Sunday morning, and it's padlocked. He can't get in. And what was the problem? They were upset with him because he wouldn't teach the doctrine of common grace and he would not evangelize. He didn't believe that there was a free offer of the gospel. And one other thing. Now, what's interesting about them, they have stayed far more orthodox to their forms of unity than the Christian Reformed churches. And it is amazing how they have grown in Grand Rapids. They're, they're prevalent, but they're, it's just a collection of families that don't evangelize, they don't have missionaries, and they don't have any use for what I just taught you for the last 45 minutes. And it's, it's a sad spectacle, but this also has found its way into Westminster West, and I could tell you, but I am out of time, about what R. Scott Clark, the professor, thinks of the conversion of Phoebe Bartlett, who is four years old and was converted uh, under the ministry of Jonathan Edwards, he really has a problem with that. He says, no, you should have pointed her back to her covenant promises that were given to him, her, as a result of the promises to Abraham. And that's where you should receive your hope. Think back to a time when your parents baptized you as an infant and so on. And I read this and I say, that's so sad. Anyway, I better pray. Holy Father, who is sufficient for these things. And I just thank you for the people that are here that are interested in these type of things. And I'm very, very humbled to give them anything that I have learned for their benefit. You know how dear this church has become to me before I even got to Owensboro, May. It always have a place on my heart. And we pray that your spirit would come upon this congregation and many people would come here 
and they would be convicted that God is of a truth in the midst of them, and they would say, this is a place in this area that I want to attend because I want to be fed the truth. We commit our morning worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.